I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. The title of our message this evening is The Greatness of God. I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring the word tonight and share a passage that is a favorite. Last Sunday evening, Johnny Artavanis preached from Psalm 34, and the title of his message was The Goodness of God. And indeed, that is true, as Psalm 34, 8 declares, O taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And it was rightly noted last week that though God is good, it is dangerous to focus on one attribute without thinking about his other attributes as well. Um, We think about uh, how sometimes people have a wrong conception of God and they think of that he's, they only think of his goodness. And sometimes people even use God's goodness and his graciousness as an excuse to sin, not thinking at all about his holiness. And when I think about the goodness of God, it, it, uh, and I was thinking about what Johnny was saying and God's moral righteousness is a key part of God's holiness. But there is another element to his holiness and the definition of the holiness of God, and that is the greatness of God. And so I wanted to uh, spend time in Isaiah 40 focusing on the greatness of God, putting that together with what we learned last week with the goodness of God, and that together giving us an idea of what the holiness of God is about One of the first prayers I ever learned as a child went like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank you for this food. Amen. I think that good and food were supposed to rhyme. They don't really rhyme. I think that uh, though a simple prayer, it's a good prayer. Though it is prone to repetition that may be meaningless and we need to caution ourselves against that, even as a young child, I learned that God is good, God is great, and God is good. And that together encompasses this idea of holiness. The very definition of the holiness of God is God's separateness or distinctness from all else, particularly from all evil. That is to say that God's holiness is that he is great and that he is good. And so... To complement what's already been said, we are looking at the greatness of God tonight. And this is important because the scriptures are clear that when someone has a low view of God's greatness, in other words, if anyone in the scripture compares God to something mundane, or if anyone in scripture says that he is common, the results are catastrophic. Let me just give you a couple examples by way of introduction. Uh, in, In Acts chapter 17, I'll read for you verses 29 through 31. It says, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commending men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. 
The context of Acts chapter 17 is that Paul was waiting for Timothy and for Silas to join him. And while he was waiting, he was wandering around the city and he was noticing all of the idols around the city of Athens. And there was one even to an unknown God. Eventually, he was in a theological discussion with some of the leading men of Athens. And he quotes some of their own philosophers in Acts 17, 29, being the offspring of God. And he says, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. The thought that God, the creator of all, could be a creation of man was so offensive that it led him to talk about repentance and then judgment. So if you follow the line, the reasoning back, he speaks about the judgment, the future judgment of Christ against sin But the topic that got him thinking about that was to place God on the level with other idols. He is far above that, and they knew it. And still, by way of introduction, as we think about Isaiah chapter 40 and what sets the stage for this great chapter, I'd like you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36, you may recall... Uh, that after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split. It was now the kingdom of Israel with 10 tribes in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. They had different kings after Solomon's reign. David lived about 1,000 years before Christ. So it wasn't long after that that the kingdom split when Solomon, after Solomon's reign. And so then we have this divided kingdom. And uh, that divided kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom, had bad kings all the time. The the southern kingdom had some good, some bad. We have uh, the northern kingdom being conquered in 722 by Assyria, 722 B.C., about the time that Isaiah was preaching. Isaiah, in this passage, preaching primarily to those of the southern kingdom, to Judah, warning them about what has just happened to the northern kingdom in Assyria that is likely to happen to them if they do not repent and turn and trust. It was Sargon mentioned in Isaiah chapter 20, Sargon, who who finally conquered Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Sargon was the father of the next king of Assyria, and that is Sennacherib. And in Isaiah chapter 36, King Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sends a message through a spokesperson to the king of Judah, who happened to be Hezekiah. And that message from Sennacherib was shouted loudly. Uh, Those who were hearing it, those who were representing the king, asked asked, uh, the messenger uh, to be quiet or to speak in Aramaic in verse 11 of Isaiah 36 so that those on the wall of the city, the people that would would not hear what he was saying about them. And and in, in Isaiah 36, verses 13 through 20, the messenger of King Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who wanted to conquer now the southern kingdom, he'd already conquered the northern kingdom, said this. This is the messenger. The messenger's name is Rabshakeh. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. He's not going to speak Aramaic. He's going to speak so that the people can hear. He's speaking Hebrew. A loud voice in Judean and said, Here are the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And do not let Hezekiah make you to trust in Yahweh, saying Yahweh will surely deliver us. 
This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of, his, of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and of vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Do you hear hear what he's saying? Sennacherib is saying, where is this Yahweh? No other gods have been able to stop me. And you think Yahweh's any different? Big mistake. To call out and say that Yahweh is just like all the other gods. And Hezekiah realized that and he humbled himself before Yahweh. And he turned to Yahweh for help. And, he, and listen to Yahweh's response. Skip down to Isaiah 37 verse 6. Isaiah 37 verses 6 and 7 we hear Yahweh's response through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a report and return to his own land and will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Because of Sennacherib's blasphemy, that is, calling God common, just like any other idol or God. Uh, There were three consequences. He was going to hear a report, he was going to return to his own land, and he was going to fall by the sword in his own land. If you like alliteration, here are the three three consequences. There's a report, there's a return, and there is a rubbing out. And so that's, that's the prophecy from Yahweh. Pick up the story now in chapter 37, down in verse 33. Isaiah 37, verse 33 says this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, the same way he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares Yahweh. Indeed, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Yahweh says, He's going to threaten you, but not even one arrow will be fired. Remember that Yahweh had promised an everlasting kingdom through David and David's descendants. The Messiah would be in the Davidic line. And so God was going to preserve his people. There would be a remnant. And so God says, the king of Assyria, it's not going to happen. Look at verse 36. Then the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's the report. And the men arose early in the morning, and behold, all of them were dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, set out and returned home and lived at Nineveh. That's the return. Now it happened that as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, 
Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. That's the rubbing out. Exactly what God had prophesied through the prophecy of Isaiah, that's what happened to this king. It is a grave error to speak out against the greatness of God or to belittle the greatness of God, to think that he is somehow common and not distinct, transcendent, majestic. But just in case we think that unbelievers are the only ones who doubt God's greatness, we are reminded in Isaiah chapter 40 that even the followers, the true followers of Yahweh need to honor him for who he really is. Chapters 38 and 39 of Isaiah remind us because of Judah's continual disobedience and lack of trust, Judah would be disciplined. Not utterly destroyed, but another nation, Babylon, would come in. The Babylonians would come in at a future time, and they would carry off those of Judah, their best young men, and they would destroy much of the city, and it would be desolate. And so as we come to Isaiah 40, we're reminded that it is essential for us to remember who God really is and see him for who he is and honor him and trust him in all his glory. So we look to Isaiah 40, we will look at three implications regarding the greatness of Yahweh, three implications that should motivate you to trust him for who he really is. We're gonna look at his comfort, his capability, and his consequences. The first implication is this. Because he is great, he can comfort like no one else can comfort. Because Yahweh is great, he can comfort like no other. Verses 1 through 11. There are three cries of comfort in these verses. And the first one is one of hope. We see this in verses 1 through 2 with two commands. He opens up with comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. This section is full of imperatives in Isaiah 40. God is instructing his prophet and prophets. Actually, the command here is in the plural. You all comfort my people. Elohim is commanding Isaiah and any future prophets because this prophecy was given to Isaiah about a captivity, a deliverance for a captivity, and the captivity hadn't even yet taken place. The captivity would take place years later, decades later. And then 70 years after that, they would return, and that's where the comfort comes. That there will be a remnant, and I will bring them back, and it will be in the future, and those people need to know that there is comfort from me and that my word stands. Comfort my people. It's possible that he's speaking this to all of the remnant to remind them to comfort, to be comforted, because Yahweh, his word, will stand. There will be a return. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Verse two says, this passage is not unlike Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future 
and a hope. People often quote that verse. It's a favorite verse of many people. I remember that uh, I was teaching uh, at one stage at a, a small Bible college, and we would have, for somebody had had this tradition, that, that, that they had this idea that freshmen should come up and share their favorite Bible verse in the opening chapels. And uh, it was not a good idea most of the time because freshmen should not be sharing in chapel when they first arrive at Bible. Seniors, maybe, but, but anyways, uh, uh, many of them, their favorite verse was Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and, and it's fine to quote it. It's a great verse. It's God's faithfulness. He is a faithful God. But, but those who know the context of it, we kind of cringe a little bit when somebody says, uh, and my favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11, and I, I wish this upon you. Please, please no. Please no. Because it begins with a conjunction, with, with a four, with a causal clause. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And so you have to go back to verse 10 to see what the four is there for. And then we see that in verse 10. It says, for thus says Yahweh, Jeremiah twenty nine ten, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon... I will visit you and establish you my good word to you and return and you to you to return to this place for I know the plans I have for you declares Yahweh plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. The you there in Jeremiah 29:11 was the remnant and his plans for peace came after years of calamity. Just imagine just imagine that I'm not saying that we're Israel cuz we're not but just imagine that we were disobedient and Southern California was a terrible, debaucherous place where even God's people didn't stand up and honor him for who he is. And so let's just imagine that God said, I'm going to rip you from this land and Canada is going to come in from the north. And they're going to, it's not funny. They, and, 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 and Canada is going to come in from the north and they're going to carry off the best and brightest from all of you, the, the Daniels, the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes. All of them are going to be carried off, and the rest of people are going to be slaughtered. Listen to Jeremiah 29, verse 17. They would experience the sword, famine, pestilence, and they will look like rotten figs, it says. Cut open figs that are rotting. That's what it'll look like around here. Imagine that that were the prophecy. But imagine if the the word of comfort that I'm sharing with you is, for I know the plans I have for you, plans of peace. After 70 years of being cut open like figs, those who are still alive in captivity are going to come back from Canada and rebuild this city. That's the context of Jeremiah 29. It's the same context for Isaiah 40. Comfort, oh comfort my people. For when they return, they can know that their warfare against me is over. Their iniquity has been removed. I have forgiven them. The cruel punishment of the Babylonians has been like double. It's been sufficient to punish the rebellious Israelites. You can return now, says Yahweh, and he, and he has this cry, these cries of comfort in verses 1 and 11. The first, the first cry was a comfort because of hope. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. 
because God's plans are much bigger than our plans. And for Israel, there was hope. The second cry of comfort we find still in verses uh, 1 through 11, we're looking at verses 3 through 8, there's a cry of preparation. Look at verses 3 through 8. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert the highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. But the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In this cry of comfort, the first cry is hope, verses 1 and 2. The second cry we have here is is to prepare, to prepare, verses 3 through 8. This would be fulfilled in the short term, but more fully in the long term. In the short term, those who would return in the future from 70 years of exile in Babylon would have to prepare the way. They would have to make it easier for people to come and return. And when it says to prepare the way, he's not literally talking about a work of civil engineering. He's not literally taking that, telling them to make highways in a desert and to lower the mountains and bring the valleys up so that the highway has the right incline or decline and it's not too steep. And so he's not telling them literally about that. He's talking about their hearts, their mission control centers. Remember, verse 2, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The way to prepare was to remind the people that they need to trust in God's word. What people do when they're in captivity is remind other people that God is faithful. He has great plans and he will use everything we do for his glory and for our goodness. But we need to trust him. We need to honor him. We need to believe his word. Why? Because all flesh is like grass and all its loving kindness like the flower of the field. Flowers of the field are beautiful. We look around California now and we see all these green hills and soon there will be flowers popping up. But it just takes a few of those hot winds, just like in Palestine, to make everything scorched and look as brown and dead as ever. And we get all wrapped up in our own lives thinking that we're beautiful flowers. And there are great things to rejoice about in our lives. But compared to Yahweh, it's here and then gone. But the word of God stands forever. Your earthly life is a flower that will fade, which is why you need to trust in Yahweh, who provides eternal life. The cry to prepare, though, has a greater fulfillment. It should sound somewhat familiar to you because all four Gospels quote a portion of Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, and they apply them to whom? Keep your finger there in Isaiah 40 and turn with me to Mark chapter one. We'll we'll just look briefly. I, I I can't not look at this passage because it is so beautiful to think about all four gospels quoting Isaiah 40 and talking about someone making, preparing the way for God. In the short term, that was fulfilled by Judah, the remnant, 
who were in captivity by getting people's hearts right by saying trust in God's word. But the greater fulfillment is found with John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. The very first four verses of Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark opens his gospel with one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ by quoting a passage about Yahweh from Isaiah chapter 40 and applying it to Christ. Make ready the way of the Lord. That is, make ready the way of Yahweh. But when Mark quotes that passage, he's talking about Jesus. How can he say that? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And what's significant here is that that the way that John the Baptist prepared the way for God, the Messiah, for God in the flesh, Emmanuel, Jesus, was preaching repentance, was preaching repentance. Those who heard the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before Christ And then in 586, when the Babylonian captivity was initiated, and then 70 years later, when the returns started, those who heard prepare the way of Yahweh, they understood it to mean tell people to trust in God's word. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Messiah, taking the same passage, but applying it as prepare your hearts for the Messiah. Get rid of your self-righteousness. Get rid of what you've been trusting in that's not God. Repent. Turn. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preparation for deliverance involves getting your heart ready. And let me tell you something. If you're listening to this message and you have never truly repented of your sin if you think that somehow your sin is hidden from God and that you do not need to fall before him and repent and confess and turn and trust in him and cry out to him for salvation, there is no hope for you without Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and therefore wages is what you deserve at the end of the day. What you deserve for sin is death. Ezekiel says the soul of him who sins must die. Spiritual, eternal death, eternal punishment. The Bible teaches that those who sin will be punished for their sin for all eternity. And that puts us in a terrible predicament. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ, who didn't have to die, allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute, as a sacrifice on your behalf because of God's great love for you, that if you would repent of your sin, see your sin, repent of your sin, turn and trust in in Christ who broke the power of sin by raising from the grave, if you would trust in Christ, you would have life. 
because God would take his righteousness and place it into your account and your sin and place it onto his account where he paid for it fully on the cross. And if you have not yet truly trusted in Christ, somehow you think you're trusting in your own righteousness or trying to hide your sin, stop your tomfoolery. This day, immediately after this service, there are people who will pray with you, who will, who will go over this with you again. Repent, turn before you go to bed tonight. Make sure that you are right with God and that you have a right view of God. There's a cry of hope, there's a cry of preparation, and there's a cry to gaze. There's a cry to look, a cry to behold upon the one who delivers in verses 9 through 11. Take a look at verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Raise your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. That, those, the good news, the gospel as we know it. But in this case, it was the good news that God will deliver from captivity. John preached the good news that God will deliver from slavery to sin by trusting in Christ's righteousness. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Verse 10, behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength, with his arm ruling with him, ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Verse 11 seems so out of place. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. His arm, in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes, the baby lambs. The Lord in all his glory, with all his might, is a gentle shepherd who cares for the young. This is how great our God is. Behold, behold. At his first coming some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and we saw that shepherd's side of him. His sacrificial death was a display of so many of God's attributes because when Christ died on the cross for the sins of those who would repent and trust for him, we saw displayed God's love, his mercy, his grace, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his wrath, his justice, his patience. In the second coming, our Lord will come again and we will see him in his glory, in his might, in his strength, yet he will still have that shepherding tenderness with him. That event is described in Daniel 7, verse 13, Revelation 9, verses Sorry, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, and Matthew 9, verses 30 through 31. Listen to Matthew 9, verse 30. And the sign of the Son of, of, Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and so they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one from one end of the sky to the other. Isaiah 40, verses 11, 1 through 11, was written to comfort. It was to be heralded to people, and we need to herald a message of hope and comfort to people today. But there's a second implication in Isaiah 40. Not only because of God's greatness, he can comfort like no other, but he is capable like no other. 
we see that God is capable like no other in verses 12 through 26. This is the theology behind the comfort. When people say, well, can God really comfort us? Take a look at his greatness. This is when you turn to Isaiah 40, verse 12, when somebody says, can God really? As soon as they say that, say, oh, let's go to Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26. We know that he is capable because no one else compares to him. His width is immeasurable. His wisdom is unending. His worthiness is unquestionable. And his word is unconquerable. Take a look at verse 12 where we see his width or his breadth or his depth or his size. It's unmeasurable. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and encompassed the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales? Men try to estimate the size of the, the creation around us. Scientists tell us that the ocean is 1.3 billion cubic kilometers. Scientists believe that mountains function somewhat like nails, fixing the earth's crust, keeping it from sliding around. But when you think of the greatness of God, how can you measure his size? If we're estimating at the world and the universe, what about the one who created that? The best that, that, that Isaiah can do is use human terms to describe God as though he had a hand and that the oceans of the world, which are really one ocean, really would just fit in that hollow place of his hand. I was curious this week, how much water can I hold in the hollow of my hand? Thinking about this passage, I went and I'm ashamed that I didn't have a measuring device in our kitchen small enough to measure the action. It was less than a teaspoon. Once it had fallen through my fingers and I was trying to hold it, I, less than a teaspoon. Of course, he's just using figures of speech like, like a jeweler works with, a, with a small instruments in front of him. That's how the Lord looks when he sees Things like the ocean, uh, the span. He measures with a span, verse 12. A span is about nine inches. It's, about from, it's from your middle tip of your middle finger to, your, to a man's thumb when it's stretched out. That was a span. He looks at the, how many spans would this universe be? Not only is his width immeasurable, but the second reason why God is so capable, his wisdom is unending. Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and made him know the way of understanding? You might meet someone who says that he is full of wisdom and he doesn't need to be taught anything by anyone. But with God, it's really true. I like what Erwin Lutzer once said about God. He says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? How can a God who is all-knowing and all-wise from all eternity, how can he say, oh, that just occurred to me? 
It's hard for us to even imagine how that can be. That's how small our minds are. In verse 13, we see that his thoughts are way above our comprehension because no one can encompass his spirit, which is another way of saying no one can comprehend what he thinks. No one has ever given God advice or helped God out. Some of us have thought that we would try. Foolishness. He doesn't need counsel. He's all wise. He doesn't need help in making decisions. He is just because he is God. The incarnate Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life because he is one with the Father, the very definition of truth and the giver of all life. His wisdom is unmeasurable. His, his, his width is unmeasurable. His wisdom is unending, verses 13 and 14. Take a look at verses 15 through 20. His worthiness is unquestionable. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as a speck on dust of the scales. Behold, he lifts up the coastlands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as non-existent and utterly formless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the graven images, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished to make such a contribution chooses a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a wise craftsman to prepare a graven image that will not be shaken. In recent times, it's becoming more and more common to hear people who are sports fans argue about who the greatest of all time is, the G-O-A-T, the GOAT. Who's the GOAT in this sport? Who's the GOAT in baseball, in soccer, in, in, in golf or football? And you'll hear these conversations. They go back and forth. And is it Michael or LeBron? Is it Messi or Maradona? Maradona. Is it Nicholas or is it Woods? Is it Brady or is it Brady? It's, it's Brady. You hear these conversations, right? I'm, people are so passionate about this. I'm sure someone will come up here and tell me later that I left out somebody who should have been mentioned here. But I guarantee you that I did not because no man should ever bear the title greatest of all time. God is the only one who is worthy of the title greatest. It is superlative, meaning far above all else. And God is the greatest. He's the greatest before time began. He's the greatest throughout all the centuries of time. And he will continue to be the greatest for all eternity. He is God. There is no one greater in the developing world, you'll see someone has to go to a well to get water for their home and it's a valuable commodity and they don't want to waste it. And so they pump the, the water into a bucket. They put it on top of their head or they carry it and, and maybe while they're putting it on the te- head, maybe a drop of water spills out. One drop. They're not concerned about it. Look at all they have. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Which is not to say that those who are created in God's image have no value, but when you compare nations to the worthiness of God, rulers 
to who God is. It's like a drop from a bucket. They are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. You take your, you go to the store, you get your produce, you're about to put it on the scale and you notice one speck of dust. Do you remove it? No, it's nothing. It's not gonna affect the price or anything. It's dust. What's more insignificant than a speck of dust? Verse 15, a speck of fine dust. It's like a subcategory of dust. Listen, those nations that think they're better because they have an ocean view, behold, he lifts up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 16 tells us that even if the, every cedar from Lebanon, the place that where rulers went to get wood for their palaces, if you took every tree and made a massive fire and sacrificed every animal as an offering to Yahweh, it would not be enough. He doesn't need your counsel. An offering like that would do nothing to make him greater. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as non-existent and utterly formless. If that word formless looks familiar, it's the same word from Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. God looks at nations whose rulers claim to be great And it has an impact on his greatness like the formlessness or emptiness of the earth before it was really fully created. How is it possible that we are even then tempted to worship anyone but Yahweh? Again, this is not to say that he doesn't care. In fact, This passage only highlights his care even more because if he's that great that none of us deserve or compared to him at all and yet he cares for you, says Matthew 10, more than he cares for the sparrows and he cares for the sparrows and he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He loves you. He wants you to listen to his voice. This is the great God who is strong and mighty and yet tender for the nursing lambs. How can you think that he's like anyone else? Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? As for the graven images, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished to make such a contribution chooses a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a wise craftsman to prepare a graven image that will not be shaken. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer identified idolatry as not thinking rightly about God. He says, quote, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where there is no overt act of worship, where no overt act of worship has taken place. Wow. Wrong thinking about God is the key factor in idolatry. Father, forgive us 
for many times we have been thoughtless about you. Your width is immeasurable. Your wisdom is unending. Your worthiness is unquestionable. And a fourth theological reason we find in this section about his capability is that his word is unconquerable. Verses 21 through 26. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Four questions right in a row. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? How can you not know this? It is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. How can you not know that the creator and sustainer of the earth has authority? When I say his word is unconquerable, I'm talking about his authority. He is God who is over everything and no one even stands a chance of conquering Yahweh. We are like small creatures standing up to him, grasshoppers. All the heavens together like a small tent. Verse 23, it is he who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. There's that word again, without form, empty, nothingness. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Rulers who try to stand up against God are like dandelions. A wind comes along and they're just spread out, carried away like stubble. They sprout up quickly. The gap between he and us is so infinite, there is no comparison. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Who will be my rival? And here I say I love it, refers to God as the Holy One, 32 times in this book, the Holy One of Israel. God is holy because he is both good and he is great. He is morally righteous all the time. And he is so transcendent and above us. He is like no other. He is completely distinct. He is majestic. He is above all. He is unmeasurable, all wise, unquestionably the only one, utterly set apart, exceptional. He is the greatest. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number and calls them by name because of the greatness of his vigor and the strength of his power. None of them is missing. He spoke every star into existence. He knows the name of every star. He sustains them because his strength is more sufficient than anything we can imagine. Earth seems to be a large planet to us and stars seem to be very small and far away. And yet, if you took the earth and you could reproduce it and make a marble the size of the earth, so an earth-sized marble, and you wanted to, to go and, and take a bag that was the size of our sun and fill up that bag with earth-sized marbles, you would need 1.3 earth-sized marbles to fit 
in a bag the size of the sun. And the sun's not even really the largest star close to it. Antares is a star that's visible from Earth, not from Los Angeles, but from Earth, from Agua Dulce and Big Bear. It would take 700 suns to equal the size of that one star, Antares. Mathematicians estimate that there's somewhere between 10 sextillion and 200 sextillion stars in the universe. 10 sextillion is a billion, billion stars. It's one with 22 zeros behind it. It's more than all the estimated grains of sand on the earth. And our Lord is so great, he's named everyone. And he knows the name of everyone. He's so great, we can't imagine how great he is. And because he's great, he can comfort like no other. He is capable like no other. No other. And verses 27 through 31, rounding out our chapter, he has consequences like no other. Our Lord has consequences like no other because he is the greatest. And there is no one greater than him. And so there are two consequences that affect every one of us. And those are either condemnation or change. Take a look at condemnation, verses 27 through 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and the justice due me passes by my God? This is kind of a common cry of man. We hear people say this quite frequently. God doesn't see me. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about this. Or I've been treated unjustly. I've been treated unfairly and God does nothing. God doesn't care. He doesn't even know about this. He's obviously tired of helping people like me. He's given up on me. Those who say this about our great God are so self-deceived, they have no idea who he really is. To thinking that somehow your life is hidden from God and you go on living, worshiping yourself and not God, acting as though he can't help you or he doesn't understand. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. These with verse 27 are words of condemnation for thinking such a thing. Why do you say that, O Jacob? Evidently, there were some, or would be some, because this was prophesied prior to them even being taken into captivity, but there would be some who were in captivity, who were preserved as the remnant, and they still question, God has forgotten about us. God doesn't care about us. It doesn't matter what we do. When we die, we just go into the earth, and we just become worm food. There's no afterlife. There's nothing. How can you believe that? Why do you say that, O Jacob? Act as though God does not exist. Do you understand how offensive that is to the God that you know exists according to Romans chapter one? Because internally he's put it in your heart and externally you see creation all around you. They were unwilling to listen to his word. But those who will, those who have repented and trusted in our Lord, those of us today who have life because of Jesus Christ, 
There's a second consequence. It's not one of condemnation, which John 3 says remains on you if you do not repent and turn and, turn and trust in Christ. But it's a second consequence, and that is change. And look at how different the person is who truly believes in the greatness of God. Verse 29, he gives power to the weary, and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I love this part of the, of the chapter because it's a beautiful promise for those who are tired and weary. There's an idea here. I mean, you picture people coming out of captivity and the difficult task they had before them, and they were mounted up with wings as eagles. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get back there. Let's go. And then they're running. They're, first they were flying. Now they're running. Now they're walking. As long as they keep on moving, God is going to strengthen them. God will continue to supernaturally somehow make them different than they were before. They're given new strength, like a runner who somehow runs and runs and runs and doesn't get tired. Or someone who's able to walk and walk and walk, and no matter what happens to try to get him to stumble in his path, he does not faint. Paul uses similar language in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9. There are many passages I could take you to, but for time, let's just look at 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to this. I'll read verses 9 and 10 to you. I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's somebody who has been changed. That's somebody who's different. That's somebody who sees that their life is here to glorify God and to exalt his greatness. And it's not about them. And they have a supernatural strength that is different than the world can comprehend because they're persecuted, they don't fall down. They are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but never destroyed. God strengthens those who trust in him. When you see God for who he really is, there's a change in your outlook. The modern missionary movement was greatly influenced by a man in the 1700s named Nicholas Zinzendorf. He sent out hundreds of missionaries, encouraged them to go to lands that desperately needed the gospel from Europe. He encouraged them. Many of them were fearful of dangers like malaria, oppression, He's quoted as having taught these three truths. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. For those of us who don't understand the greatness of God, that might sound like foolishness. But for those of us who do, what greater goal can we have but to share with others who are lost the good news of God's majesty, his greatness, and his goodness in providing a way of salvation and sharing with them who he really is and pointing all the glory to him 
with everything that we are about. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you and we do know, we have heard, we do understand here tonight, we are humbled by your greatness. We understand, but we don't understand. But we want to understand more. We do know this. You are far above all that we can think or imagine. And your work does more than we can think or imagine. We can think of no one who compares with you. Your majesty is far above all others. Indeed, there is no other for you are altogether holy. As the angels cried out in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of your glory. Help us not only to see your glory more clearly, but to herald it boldly to a world that desperately needs comfort and salvation and hope, which can only be found in you. It's in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray this. Amen.